We collected your questions last week, and I'm going to run through them in a moment. And we're going to launch into this series where it gets bigger by the moment. Last week, I gave you some reasons as to why we would do this series, why we would take the time to do a series like this. And the image we've been using so far is the idea of so many of us living the Christian life or doing it on our own power. We're literally just pushing the car. There's nothing wrong with the car. We just choose to push it on our own power. And the silliness of that example, we've contrasted with what it would be like if we ignited the spirit within us so that we were actually driving the car on the power of the spirit instead of pushing it along the side of the road. That's the visual image. Um, we also had these reasons from last week to kind of help you get started on why we would do this series. And some of you commented about, you'll see it in the questions. Some of you said, yes, uh, I don't really know much about the role of the Spirit, or why is it not talked about very much? So what I'd like to do is I want you to get started. Tell me if this resonates with you in any way. Here's a quote from one of the books we're reading. This is from Chuck Swindoll. He says, the inescapable fact is this. Most, yes, most. Most Christians you and I know have very little dynamic or joy in their lives. Ask them. They long for depth, for passion, for a satisfying peace and stability instead of a superficial relationship with God made up of religious sounding words without feelings and ongoing struggles without healings. Surely there's more to the life of faith than church meetings, Bible study, religious jargon, and meaningless prayers. And feel that way? You feel like you might be in a place like that where you think, you know, the one that struck me the most was this part about ongoing struggles without healings. I mean, it seems like there should be just like an unleashing of healings going on when you see the power that's supposed to be available. But most of us are just okay. Just praying for things just to be okay the way they are. Instead of being bold enough to actually pray for healings. We're okay praying for something that can happen. Like just guide the doctor's hands. You know, something that's safe to pray as opposed to just heal this person outright without any explanation, right? That struck me. Maybe you see Jesus' words in John 7. Jesus stood up in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture says, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. I think some of us yearn for a life with God that's characterized like this living water. What's the key? Jesus is standing there telling people, you want this? You want this life? What's the key? It's the Spirit. And that's what we're doing this series for. Yes? Uh, well, I don't know if you're going to or want to or can answer this now, but it just kind of struck me that it says that Christ hadn't been glorified yet, so the Spirit had not been given. So prior to Christ's crucifixion, resurrection, and the day that the Spirit came down at Pentecost or whatever, did people not ever experience God in that way? Like those things that we described last week of how we feel the Spirit or have had contact with God or been filled with the Spirit, did that just not exist? That is the best way to understand Jesus' words. Here's another way to understand them. Last week I said that Jesus was telling the disciples, it's better that I go away and that another counselor, another advocate, another comforter, you put in the word come. And we were talking about how they were like, no, no, there's nothing better than having you, right? And we still feel that way, right? We would rather right now, truth be told, Holy Spirit aside, this whole series, just let it aside. If Jesus were here personally, we'd go, I'd want that. And if he said, no, 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 I'm just coming to tell you it's better that you have the Spirit, we're like, we don't believe you. One of the reasons is what he's talking about, because before the Spirit came, 
God's presence, God's action, let's call it, was kind of located in places. It worked through certain prophets. It came upon certain people. It manifested itself in certain visitations. There were certain people called. Even Jesus on earth was in a certain place. And because he's incarnate, he's bound in that way physically from where he would go. If he's in Galilee, he's not in Judea. One of the reasons it's better was because the Spirit would come and then God would be everywhere and in all of us at the same time, doing things where God is acting simultaneously in all places through the church and through people. And yes, your question directly, people look at that and say, that's exactly what this means, is that prior to the Pentecost event, that the Spirit came selectively, acted in certain ways, but was not indwelling all people. I feel like we take that for granted then, because it puts a different perspective, because we don't know what that's like. So say I'd rather have Jesus standing in this room instead of that. We don't know really what it's like to live in a world where we can't just access the love of God or like God's presence on our own, wherever. Yeah, we've totally left that behind. I agree. Soren? Is this different than, because I was reading at the beginning of Luke, and I left my Bible there, so I don't have the exact quotation, but there's a, there's a lot of spots even in the first just two chapters before like Jesus gets here and is born, where it talks about the Spirit or people being filled with the Spirit and all that. Is that a different Spirit? No, it's talking about specific visitations, right? Like the Spirit would come, like, for example, in the birth of Christ through Mary, right? Or that he comes to, so you have specific people throughout even the Old Testament. So the Spirit doesn't just show up in the New Testament, but it comes to specific people and specific times for specific reasons, as opposed to God's presence in us at all times for any believer. And that is a marked difference that happens after Pentecost. So, yes, I'm glad you caught that, because that's actually one of the great things that comes out of this, is that that gives us our theology of what happened before Pentecost, from Jesus' own words. These are the series that are already on our website. These are things about the spirit that we are not covering because we've already covered them in the past. So I want you to know, first of all, that if we're going to touch on the Trinity or spiritual gifts or the mystery of how to determine God's will or hearing from God, all of those we've already done. They're all on our website. And if you're interested in those particular topics or you ask about that, I'm just going to refer you right there to look at. The other thing I said last week is, we're tracking four different books already for this series, all right? So those are A.W. Tozer's Mystery of the Holy Spirit, Embraced by the Spirit by Chuck Swindoll, Robert Morris is the God I Never Knew, and Forgotten God by Francis Chan. Because of your questions, I've also had to pick up these books, <laughs> uh, which I'll talk about a little bit later. Uh, Perspectives on Spirit Baptism, The Forgotten Trinity, and the book With by Sky Jathani, which has just come out and is getting a lot of rave reviews um, I will talk about a couple of those later, so know, as always, that uh, there's a lot going on in the background just to be able to answer some of your questions. Last week, I gave you a card and I asked you to write down questions. Boy, did you guys have a lot of questions. You know, sometimes, well, I just take questions and we try to get the series going to answer them, but I thought you'd want to take a peek at what everybody else was writing. You want to do that? You want to see what other people had to wonder so you don't feel as crazy? The most asked question, asked probably, I would say, by probably at least a third, if not half the room, is baptism by the Holy Spirit synonymous with receiving him when you're saved? Another version of that is baptism by the Holy Spirit different than water baptism. Uh, I told you last week I wasn't going to go into that. I was corrected by all of your questions. That's why there's a couple more books on the screen, and we will go into that in a couple of weeks, because so many of you wanted to know about that. I think it's fair we should talk about it. 
Uh, here's the questions we're going to cover in the coming weeks, and then I'll tell you the questions we're going to cover tonight. Can you have a healthy walk with God without knowing or understanding the Holy Spirit? How does the Holy Spirit make your life better or more effective? How does the Holy Spirit work in our daily lives? How do we know when the Holy Spirit is present? Can the Holy Spirit be earned? Can you lose the Holy Spirit? Can someone deny the Holy Spirit? What responsibility do we have for losing touch with the Holy Spirit? Did the Holy Spirit indwell people before Christ came to earth? I think we just answered that, right? So, bing. <laughs> what does it mean for the Holy Spirit to fall upon a person or a group? What are the boundaries, limitations of the Holy Spirit, if any? Can you pray to the Holy Spirit? Are prayers to the Holy Spirit supposed to be structured differently? What do you do to communicate with the Holy Spirit? Does the Holy Spirit use or usurp us? Can the Holy Spirit use an unbaptized person? How do we reach a good balance of depending on the Holy Spirit versus working hard? That was my favorite question. It is a great question because there really needs to be a solution to that question. That's a great one. Is the Holy Spirit's power manifested in individuals or in the church at large? Is indwelling of the Spirit dependent on our understanding of this reality or rather an attitude or posture of our heart? To what degree does one have an influence on the experience of slash the drawing of on the Holy Spirit? Does doubt interfere with the Holy Spirit's work? What matters about the Holy Spirit beyond spiritual gifts? Is guidance from the Holy Spirit necessary for salvation? What does the power of the Holy Spirit look like compared to the power of the Father or Christ? How do you know it's actually the Holy Spirit speaking to you instead of just your own subconscious mind being active? How do you determine what the Holy Spirit is as opposed to deceiving yourself? Are we capable of anything without the Spirit and his gifts? What are some of the clearer verses that detail the Holy Spirit and how we should interact with the Spirit? Since the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are three in one, are you not engaging all parts of the Trinity when you engage any part of God? There's the metaphysical question that you got to like rack your brain around. All of those were questions that just came out of the cards we asked last week. Uh, do you want answers to those? Any of them? Sound interesting to you? Uh, here's the ones I think we're going to cover tonight from your questions last week. Does the Holy Spirit have a personality? What is the name of the Holy Spirit? It's Fred, by the way. Fred. <laughs> is the Holy Spirit an extension of power of Christ? He is referred to in one of the instances as the Spirit of Christ. Should we address the Spirit or talk to him like we do the Father and Son? What are the roles or responsibilities of the Holy Spirit? To what extent is the Holy Spirit responsible for our ability to experience God for faith and for belief? Why is the Holy Spirit's work hidden or difficult to discern? Why is the Holy Spirit the least known, least talked about of the Trinity? And why has the church failed so miserably at teaching about the Holy Spirit, and how do we improve that? I don't know if we can get through all of those tonight. Let's try to see how far we can get. I'm going to answer the first one right now. I think the reason we have trouble teaching this in churches is because it takes about what we're about to do right now, which is allowing people to ask their questions and going through the time that it takes to answer them. Or you could read a book, maybe a few books, to really get a good perspective on what it is. And the reason you've got to do one of those two things, and it's hard for a church to do this, is because churches don't like to do series that go on for five or six or seven or 10 or 12 weeks because they think people won't pay attention, and they're right. They're right about that. But 
Something like trying to understand the Holy Spirit or trying to understand the triune nature of God is not something you can do in half an hour on a Sunday morning. You just can't do it. You could do it in a book. But as you know, most Americans actually don't read books after they finish school, right? More than half of Americans stop reading when they leave whatever the last level of education is. I know that doesn't cover any of you, right? You're still all reading. Or at least you're having me read seven books and then tell you what they say, one or the other. But it's important to understand that that's the reason it's so hard. Uh, we like to just feel very good about a subject emotionally. This subject has great power in it, but as you're gonna see tonight, you gotta kinda understand a little bit about it uh, before you can actually start to experience that power. All right, let's answer some of your questions. Who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is God. And this is something that I want to say might sound obvious to a few of you, but on our cards, it didn't come out as obvious in your questions. The Holy Spirit is God. He is the third person of the Trinity. All right. Now, I said we're not going to talk about the Trinity. We're not going to slide into a whole discussion because we have five or six podcasts on the Trinity and understanding the Trinity and where those scriptures are found and how we formulated the whole idea of God's revealed triune nature. Here's what I will point out, though. The question was, does the Holy Spirit have a personality? And, and it depends on what you mean by personality. I believe the answer is yes under any definition. But the first thing we gotta look at is, the Holy Spirit is one of the three persons of the Trinity. So by that definition, yes, he has a personality. In addition, you can see that scripture gives us clues about the Spirit and his personality in emotional sense. So you would say it's not just a force or a power, which some of you asked about. Is it a force? Is it a power? Is he just emanating as a force or power from God? No, he is a person of the Trinity. And scripture says you can blaspheme the spirit separately from any other part of God. The spirit can be insulted, specifically the spirit, and you can also grieve the Spirit. And those citations are Matthew 12, 31, 32, Hebrews 12, 29, Ephesians 4, 30. And there are other examples, I just cited a few, that show that there is a direct personality. And this is good news for us. It's not stale information. The reason is that means that we're not talking to an impersonal, inanimate force or power. We're talking to God. And that is the beginning of understanding the Holy Spirit is that we are talking about God. Now, I understand this is where it gets a little bit mind-bending, where we try to understand how is it that God is one being made up of three persons. This was the church's explanation. They drew this diagram, and for centuries, this was the explanation, and it clearly answers all questions if you just look at it long enough. Uh, actually, if you look at it long enough, it starts to spin, you know. <laughs> uh, what this diagram was attempting to do was to show that the clear theology and teaching of the church from the beginning is that each is God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but they are not one another. That's what makes them persons, right? A better formulation might be this one that James White gives in his book called The Forgotten Trinity, which was a great book and the basis of our series on the Trinity. I would recommend this book to you if you're going to say, I really need to understand the Trinity in terms that are mature, that take time to understand, that are not going to just make analogies like it's like an egg with a shell and a yolk, but like, you know, really understand the Trinity. I would recommend this book to you highly. But his formulation is this one. Within one being that's God, there exists eternally three co-eternal and 
co-equal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yes, the Holy Spirit has a personality. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is a he, not an it. And I would say the first step of misunderstanding that we have in the churches is getting over that hurdle. Trying to understand it. Yes. When you say the Holy Spirit is a he, do you, are you meaning to put gender on it? Yes. And here's why. So in the Greek, the spirit is gender neutral in the language, right? And a lot of people have said, because the Holy Spirit, the word for the Holy Spirit is a gender neutral, we should not, we should not give it a gender. My response is two things. One is, in the scripture, he is referred to as a he, right? So I don't know that you can genderize the Holy Spirit, but I want to get away from it. So I'm responding to it by giving it a he. If you want to give it something other than he, like personhood, P, right, like something, then I'm okay with that because the gender is neutral. But I also want to say that just because the gender is neutral doesn't solve the issue because Greek is weird about gender. Like, for example, love is a female gendered word, but we don't say she when we talk about love. We say it, like, and so in English and Greek, you're going to have this weird equivalence about it that makes it strange. I'm trying to emphasize personhood more than anything. So you want to add that? I was just going to say the issue is it's a greater loss to say it because then it's not personal and that's a big problem. So it's the same problem we have talking about God because we don't think God is actually a man, you know, in heaven, you know, like God the Father is a man or something. It's like, no, but we can't. We would be forced to say it in the English language, and that's a huge problem, so we say he. I think that's a good point. Like, what we gain by calling the Father, Father, in terms of the relationship, and in terms of the fact that Jesus used that word, we've just said, okay, that's what we're going to use. Uh, but I don't think anybody here would take the position that the Father is male, right? And I want to be the same careful when we talk about the Holy Spirit, because my real issue is that so many of us, including in the way we wrote it, I mean, I saw it on the cards over and over, like, how do you get it? And right from the start, that's the first obstacle we have to get over in terms of having an intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit. It's very hard to have an intimate relationship with an inanimate force or power, right? As one author said, it'd be like trying to have a relationship with a chair, because a chair is an it, as opposed to a person that's in this room that you could actually get to know. So that, we got to get over that idea. But I'm going to leave it there, especially as to those objections to the Spirit because, and trying to understand personhood within the Trinity because you should be reading James White or listening to our series on the Trinity that tries to get through that in somewhat of a sane way. All right, here's another thing. So let me follow up with those verses that I was just alluding to that Daniel was hitting on. Here's some ways that the Scripture reveals the Spirit to us. In John 15, 26, it says, When the advocate, or your translation might say counselor, comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. Jesus is referring to the Spirit as he. So right from Jesus' mouth, that's the way that he refers to him. Acts 10, 19 to 20. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, Three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Okay, I highlighted the I have sent them, but look more carefully at the Spirit said to him. The Spirit is speaking. 
That's what gives us indication that we're talking about a person of God. The Spirit is saying, I'm telling you something. Right? Inanimate forces or objects don't do that. Again, in Acts 13.2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I have, which I have called them. So, once again, you see the Spirit speaking and having a relationship with the early apostles. Telling them, like, go do this, or here's what I have, or set this person aside for you. So that gives us more indications to the answer to that question. Somebody asked about the names of the Holy Spirit. I joked. So it was just Fred. Actually, the Holy Spirit has lots of names. And this is another source of confusion for many of us, because we think having so many names, they must just be characteristics. Here are just some of the names of the Holy Spirit that are found in scripture. And I say some because there's actually probably another page full of these. I've just listed the first 19 that are found in the New Testament. So you'll hear things like Holy Spirit, the Spirit, the Comforter, the Advocate, the Spirit of Truth, the Spirit of the Father, the Spirit of Christ, Spirit of God, Spirit of Glory, Spirit of Revelation. I mean, you go on and on. Spirit of Prophecy, Spirit of Adoption, Spirit of Holiness, Spirit of Life. And here's where another confusion happened. Like somebody asked this question directly. Like, are these really names of the Holy Spirit? Or is it just trying to identify something of them? Like, I have a spirit of fear. Now, we say that in English, right? I have a spirit of fear. It doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is fear. That's not his name. But that doesn't work in Greek the same way. And the thing that gives us assurance in these cases is because if you read every one of these verses in context, they're not talking about the characteristic. They're talking about action that God would be taking, that only God takes. Here's just an example. Look at this verse where, this, where three names for the Spirit are given in just one verse. In Romans 8 9, Paul says, You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. In one verse, he uses three different names for the Spirit, but it's clear that he's talking about the Spirit. Those are actions that God takes. And it would be awfully schizophrenic of him to use all of those different versions to say that God does this and Christ does that, Spirit does that. Or you could say it's awfully Trinitarian. Because to use these things so close together means pretty simply all of these things are the Spirit. So there's the answer to that question. Yes, Ben. Just before you go on, um, the, the name Spirit of God, I feel like that's used in the Old Testament as well, but I assume that it's not referring to the Holy Spirit. Can you? Actually, it does in a lot of cases. So I only cited some New Testament examples. And one of the things that we do in our series in the Trinity is we actually look and ask the question, you know, if God is triune, wouldn't you have seen some clues of that in the Old Testament? Would it just be a New Testament doctrine? And we went back. And James White's book actually does a very good job of this, of actually showing all the places in the Old Testament where not only the language that you see a lot of plural language talking about God, but even the citations that we see in many Psalms and different places in the wisdom literature show that that actually is intended to be the Spirit. That was the way it was understood. Maybe they didn't have a mature Trinitarian view of it, but the inspiration of those texts was already revealing those clues early on. So yes, you will see sometimes like a good example is take a look at Genesis right from the beginning. Like the spirit of God is moving along the waters. Like that is exactly a reference to the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. And there are many, many others. 
Right? I was just trying to cite a few from the New Testament because that's kind of where we're camped in a post-Pentecost world. Any other questions? Yeah. Yeah, I asked this question because I was thinking of like the Jewish, the Jewish people's perception of God's name, like, like Yahweh, and how like Jesus kind of has like a name. Uh, and I was wondering if this was like if, if, if the Holy Spirit had like a specific. Like, yeah, I, one author said it's really unfortunate that he doesn't, right? Just like so many of us think of him as an it instead of he, fully God, right, person. Uh, the fact that his name happens to be the Holy Spirit kind of obscures like another way of how we could have a relationship with a person who has a, like, like the father has a relational name or Yahweh has a personal name, right, or the son or Jesus or the Christ like has a role. And the Holy Spirit just, it makes it that much harder. So no, there is, all of those are the ways they're referred to. And maybe they were finding the same thing. That's why they kept coloring the name with how he was acting in a particular case. It's a good question though. Okay, enough of that. Let's think like the disciples for a moment. In John 14, something remarkable happens. Jesus is literally about to go to the crucifixion. And he begins to instruct the disciples at the very end. A lot of what we know about the Holy Spirit comes from sermons you've heard or something that somebody's told you. I want you to just go back with me for a moment. Let's just hear from Jesus as he's telling people what the role of the Holy Spirit's going to be. Because I think, why try to answer questions just from picking things? Let's just take Jesus' words. He's going to tell the disciples in John 14 to John 16, here's what's going to happen about the Holy Spirit. Now, he interweaves other material, so I've just kind of moved that aside, just to focus on what he was telling the disciples about the Holy Spirit. So a lot of you ask, like, tell me about the role of the Holy Spirit. Who is he? What do I expect in my life? What do I see? And I want to tell you that this week I got to get some of this information out to get the misperceptions out of the way. And next week our goal is to actually cover what would my life look like if I actually engage the Spirit? What would it look like? How, how would it be different? What would I see different? Like, so today we're just kind of making sure that we understand who the Spirit is. And next week it starts to get more impactful because we can say, what will it look like? And how do I do that? And how do I thwart it? How do I quench the spirit? How do I avoid doing that? We're going to talk about those more personal topics. So what does the Holy Spirit do? What are some of the roles of the Holy Spirit? Let's hear from Jesus. The first is to indwell the believers, which we've already kind of started talking about. He says, if you love me, keep my commands. And I want you to hear this, by the way, as if the disciples were hearing this. Hear it for you. You're a disciple. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. For he lives with you and will be in you. He's promising the disciples that the Spirit will come. God will come to live in them. That's the first thing the Spirit does. He goes on to say, that the Spirit's role is to teach us and remind us. Jumping down to verse 25. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I said to you. That's a great thing to have in the Spirit, that God is in you reminding you of the things that you know and the things that you're learning and to bring you into that kind of truth as you'll see a little bit later. So the Holy Spirit prompts us with those things. In chapter 15, verse 26, he tells them this, that the Spirit will come to testify about Christ. 
For when the advocate comes, whom I send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. One of you asks, why is it that we know so little about the Spirit? Why is he not talked about more? If he's got this great power, why do we not have more about him? And one of the truths seems to be is look what the role of the Spirit is. What's the role of the Spirit? To testify about Christ. He's not looking for the spotlight. Might be a crass way of saying it. The Spirit's role is to glorify Christ, to point to Christ, to bring people to an understanding of who Christ is, to enable them to believe in Christ. And so the focus of the Spirit's work, so much of it is on Christ. And that's why, I won't say he takes a back seat, but that's the role. He's pointing away from himself to Christ. What else does the Holy Spirit do? Moving to chapter 16, starting verse 7. But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. There Jesus seems to imply that he has the authority to send the Spirit. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin. Another way we say prove to the world is to convict or to convince the world about sin and righteousness and judgment. He has a role to convict the world in sin, righteousness, and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. We're going to have to understand that a little bit more in future weeks when we understand the power of the Spirit and understand what he does specifically in our life. But there the disciples are hearing it. Yes? Um, so he's talking about con like the feeling of being convicted, specifically about not believing in Christ. Because also throughout the New Testament, you see people feeling convicted, right? Or like tearing their cloth and realize what they've done. Or a whole groups of people, all of Israel, have felt convicted of how they've been towards God and they've wanted to reconcile themselves to him and so you see that kind of throughout history and the Bible so is the spirit the only way to feel conviction or is it just specifically conviction of not believing in Christ? It's really a way of proving that they need Christ. They need him because of their sin. We always think of convicting as like, like we've changed that word so much in Christianity. That's why this translation, the new version of the NIV actually uses this prove yourself language because the original tense of this is the best understood to say he's proving to the world their need for redemption from their sin through Christ. And you'll see he's proving to the world that they should, that there is belief in Christ, that that is something that the spirit does, right? And this righteousness, by the way, just so it's not, a, it's not that clear here, what does it mean by righteousness? He's convincing them that righteousness is available, that, that they will want this righteousness, that they will want Christ's sacrifice to make them right in right standing with God. That's what it's about. By the way, if you've noticed so far, these are a lot of things for somebody we don't really talk much about to be doing. I would say these are fairly important roles in the church. Role of the Spirit is to guide us into all truth. Skipping down, keeping going in verse 12. I have much more to say to you, Jesus said, more than you can now hear. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. We want to know the truth, and it seems that here the role of the Spirit is to guide us into that truth. Morgan. I think this idea of being guided into truth is one of the most powerful. It's one I reflect a lot on, meaning 
you know, like I, I reflect even on when I came to faith in Christ, and I think I was 11, and, you know, the person just gave a basic gospel presentation, I realized, no, that's for me, and, and I want a relationship with Christ, and it, it, I mean, it comes in an instant, and what's funny is, I mean, especially if you talk to lots of people about Christ, especially those who aren't looking for that relationship, um, you really see how powerful it is to talk to somebody and have them just go, yeah, I, I want that, that seems right, I mean, but... And that activity of the spirit is not because I'm super persuasive or somebody else is. It's because there's a real revelation of God there. So I think I think it's just one that we underestimate and how powerful that statement is. Oh, yeah, yeah, spirit of truth, okay, whatever. It's like, no, that's foundational, actually, to even become a Christian, is that you'd be drawn by the spirit. Last week, Daniel said that in, in how do you experience the spirit, your response was courage and knowledge, right? Which we saw in the example of Peter going from the cowardly, simple-minded, bull-headed Peter to that powerful advocate on Pentecost, right? But the eloquence of his speech is that truth. I mean, he had been with Jesus all along, and yet he assembled this huge speech that he's able to eloquently display what Christ had done. And look at what Jesus' words are. I have many more things to say to you, more than you can now hear. Like, it's not enough that I've just been with you for three years, right? It's, there's so much more to say. The Spirit will tell you what to say. The Spirit will guide you into that truth. The Spirit will reveal those things to you. And you see that throughout Scripture as many things are talked about, like who reveals? The Spirit. Who inspired? It's the Spirit. Who illuminates for us the Scriptures? The Spirit. The Spirit has this key role in this area. Yes? So, in both of these sections, it's completely communal in its address. Like, the Spirit will tell... Is there any like individual points or like are we getting to that later? We will, and you know my bias is that we as a Western country, just as Americans in general, tend to emphasize too much the individual leading when so much of what you see, not only here but in the book of Acts, is communal. Right? But let's be clear, the spirit indwells every one of us. And if you are on some desert island, that doesn't mean you can't experience the spirit. Right? But we've affirmed over and over that the model was for all of us to experience together. Like even in this room, like the things that are being said are actually helping to bring the Spirit's truth to us. Because every person that's adding to it is much more than if we just did it on our own. So the Spirit is more complete or more full with more people? No, I would say that the Spirit's effect in the church is magnified the more that we come together and experience it together. I think the Spirit is full and complete all by himself. He doesn't need to indwell anybody. He's God. But his effect in our lives is more magnified when we are together and united in that way because that's the way it was supposed to be. Monique? I don't understand that um, he will not speak on his own. Like, I don't understand that at all. <laughs> so I hope you could shed light on that because it just brings up a lot of questions about autonomy and like the personhood of God and is only God the Father quote-unquote autonomous or whatever because how Christ has to submit to the Father but then there's mutual submission so I'm kind of just confused. You're not alone because books have been written on that concept so I'll give you the short brief answer. Within God's triune nature one of the things that makes them one is this mutual submission to one another that is so complete that's why we say God is love. Right. Because God independently is submitting to God's self within the triune nature so completely that the three persons really share that essence in one being of God. People debate, is it a pecking order, which I think is not right, or is it a decision from God's self as to who is going to do what? 
but we clearly see that Jesus says, I don't say anything except what the Father has given me to say, and I glorify the Father by doing his will for me. But later you see him saying, glorify me because I've done what you've asked me to do. So he glorifies the Father, the Father's glorifying him, and here you see evidence where Jesus is saying, and I will send him, and then he will not say anything except what is given to him to say. So there seems to be a relationship between Jesus and the Spirit where you might say, it's not a pecking order, but if you want to say, what does the Holy Spirit think of people? You'd ask yourself, well, what does Jesus think of people? And then you'd say, well, what does the Father think of people? Because that is the way it seems to work. Now, that's where I'm going to leave it because there are all sorts of people who try to go deeper and does that mean that, you know, and I, I just don't want to go into what does that mean, but it is clear that that is part of that, what you're picking up on, is that's how amazing that relationship is, and that they're all fully one and God, and yet okay with having different parts where they submit in their personhood, and here that's exactly what that points to, okay? One more I want to add up here, by the way. This actually adds to your point, Mooney, because it talks about glorifying Christ, Here's what it adds here. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. So it's, it's part of the mystery that we're never going to fully understand about God. Yes, Catherine. So, like... You can't have two pieces of a triune God at the same time. And That's what Jesus seemed to imply when he said, I have to go so he can come. I don't know that there's a rule that says only one at a time. <laughs> uh, it's not like a relay race where they have to hand off the baton. Uh, <laughs> Probably a better way to understand why Jesus says it's I have to go so that he can come. Remember, Jesus has something else to do by going. I mean, he's going to go die. And then he's going to be raised from the dead. And then he's going to be glorified in a resurrected body, right? Which is a whole other mystery we don't understand. Like, how does the triune God take on an incarnation? And then maybe does, that, does he ever lose that? Or is he always incarnate? He's got a mission to go do. Right? And that's why it seems that it's not just like, I can't stay. If I stay, he can't come. It's more, I think, to do with, I know my mission, what the Father has given me to do, and I'm going to go do it. Wait for him. Okay? Yes? How is he related to the Spirit of God that was in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle? Because, like, I just don't remember, but I just remember hearing about the tearing of the curtain and how that kind of, like, released that presence of God into the world as a whole when Christ died, and I just wasn't sure, is that the same thing as the Holy Spirit, um, and so that he was contained to that, or was that God, or a different, whole different thing? No, the tearing of the tabernacle cloth is symbolic, right, of the separation now between the Holy of Holies where people thought God was going to be contained, right, is now torn, because what Christ has just done is broken open that. But there's that little interim period that's going to happen between Jesus' resurrection, where he still, he ascends, I mean, before the ascension, Resurrection, he's teaching, he's spending time with the disciples, he's preparing them even further for the Holy Spirit. Then he ascends, and then a very short time later, Pentecost happens. But that does relate symbolically. I mean, that is actually what the act is all about. And you could even hearken back to Jesus' earlier words, 
when he's predicting the temple's going to be destroyed, not just the Holy of Holies ripped open, but I mean the whole temple's coming down. This system's over. This way of interacting with God is done. Like first, there's a new way of finding atonement. You don't come here and make sacrifices like I'm the sacrifice and everything is changing from this point forward. There's a new covenant. But even more, what they have yet to learn is that that new covenant will include God living in every one of us. I don't think we get that. I don't think we're excited about God living in us. I, I know that I'm not. Uh, Francis Chan says it this way. He says, if the Spirit of God gave you supernatural abilities in basketball, and he came and indwelled you, and you saw me playing on the basketball court, but my jump shot was no different, I was no better at anything, you'd start to wonder whether the Spirit of God was in me at all or whether the Spirit of God knows how to play basketball, right? Like you would just look and say, <laughs> I don't see any difference. And I think that's kind of what we're struggling with. That's what I'm struggling with. Because I'm hearing these great promises from Jesus, and I'm looking at all of us, I'm looking at me. I don't, don't, don't want to presume I know your life. But I don't feel that that spirit of God that indwells me is giving me this kind of promise. And that's why I think next week when we start to paint the picture of what would it look like and then how do we get there, I think there's something real that we got to do here because most of us, I think, still agree with that idea of, yeah, I don't really, I wish I had that, I don't. If you have it, stand up now and teach us. Anyone? All right. Maybe you wouldn't be here. You'd be out healing people or whatever, you know? Just a couple quick more. Other roles that we see that are not from John 14, just so you know. No one can say Jesus is the Lord except by the Holy Spirit. That's a pretty important role that the Spirit has. That's in 1 Corinthians 12. If you want to say Jesus is the Lord, the Holy Spirit enables us to know. That goes back to the convicting of the world, convincing, proving to the world of their need for Jesus. You can't even say that Jesus is Lord. Come to an understanding of that. In Romans 8, we hear this, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray. I think last week it was Peter who said, like, the Spirit actually prays for us. It says here, the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. He who searches our hearts knows the minds of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in according with the will of God. Uh, yeah, the Spirit intercedes for us. Let's just say that plainly. God prays for you when you don't know what to pray. God is there in moments of weakness for you. Does that make it sound better than just saying the Spirit? But we're talking about a person of God, the Spirit, who's praying for you while indwelling you. One more role, spiritual gifts, which of course is part of our series we're not going to talk about. But just in 1 Corinthians 12, it says, Now the gifts of the Spirit's brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be uninformed about. All of these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. The Spirit gives us all gifts. The Spirit determines who gets that gift and when and for how long and for what purpose. That's stated in 1 Corinthians 12 as well. For somebody we don't know, he sure does a lot. It says that the Spirit gives us power to do God's will. It's Acts. We saw that last week. That was the whole message of last week of power. When we don't know what to say and we need to witness to somebody, that's the Holy Spirit. Mark 13, 11 and Luke 12, 12. If we don't want the condemnation that we heap on ourselves, but we want to know freedom from sin and freedom from the flesh and the things that bother us, that's Romans 8. It says that that's the Spirit. You want to know that you're adopted as a son or daughter? You want the deposit, as he's described? 
that's given to you as a deposit of what's to come, of your future glory, of your future reign with Christ? Do you want that now, the down payment? That's the Holy Spirit. That's in 2 Corinthians. You want to overflow with hope? That's the Holy Spirit, Romans 5.13. You want to be transformed to become more like Christ every single day? That's the power of the Spirit as well. 2 Corinthians 3.18. You want to produce fruit in your life? Fruit of the Spirit, like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's the Spirit evident in your life. All of these things are the Spirit. Soren. Can I just make a comment on something? This sometimes I think times where I'm hesitant towards the Spirit, but I don't like the Spirit. Because mostly that second one, I feel like it's specifically in the context of under persecution witnessing to people. But I think I hear that applied to way too many things. And I feel like the Spirit is often kind of, to me, an excuse for people that are bad at planning. And it's just kind of, I'm just going to show up and just wing it, and that's the Spirit. And that really bothers me. In the context here, Jesus was saying to the disciples, don't worry about what you're going to say when you stand up to speak about me, because the Spirit will provide you with what to say. I think that's it's taking the, like, if I preach a sermon, or the Spirit will give me what to say. And I think that's an abuse of those things, right? Because, first of all, uh, you'd have to know very intimately the Spirit to be able to do that. And second of all, you'd have to have a relationship enough to hear what those words are going to be. Uh, I don't think you could use that verse to say, whatever comes out of my mouth was the Spirit. Uh, right? Or, what, you know, hey, so what if it didn't go so well, the Spirit will just work it out. No, I don't think that's right. No, I agree with you on that. Joseph? I think oftentimes you'll hear you know, people have prepared, and then they'll say, you know, oftentimes they'll pray at the beginning, Lord, let the Spirit... Let the Spirit be my words and use it in that context. I think that's a much better usage of it, at least. Uh, there is a role where God has given us a lot that we're supposed to steward and honor him with, like preparation, like study, like thinking. Like I just don't think that anything we do uh, will honor God just because we, we're doing it for that purpose. I think we have to be careful with that. Yes? Uh, with the last one that you brought up there, um, in Galatians, to produce fruit in us, led by the Spirit, all of those... I mean, what about people that are not Christians and they display those as well? Does that mean that the Holy Spirit is residing in them? Or, or would you say that Christians, um, those that believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit um, is distinctly different or like these are different? Or Yeah, that's a very good question because the theological answer would be that a non-believer doesn't have the Spirit in them to be able to produce this fruit. But we all see in the world that there are people that exhibit these qualities in abundance over and above most Christians. So we're always left with the reality of the world where we go, what do we do with that? What do we do with the fact that there are people who don't know God who do better at God's things than God's people do? And I would say that first, this is not the only way to get these things. These are the evidence of those spirits work in your life. I would say that if you were really spirit-filled, these would be remarkable in their extent, right? You would see them in a way that could not be explained otherwise. You can get patience, for example, many ways. You might even take a seminar on patience, and you might become more patient than most Christians could ever be. But I don't believe that that is fruit of the Spirit, because the Spirit is not the one who's doing it. And I believe if it was fruit from the Spirit, it would not just be a modicum of these things in your life. You would see these things at a level as a believer, that could not be explained otherwise. You would see joy in times of martyrdom and persecution. 
right? You would not just see joy like, hey, they're a joyful person, right? You would see goodness or, you know, the perseverance that comes here, um, the loving kindness that would become here in ways that just can't be explained any other way were it not sustained by the Spirit of God in you. And that's one of the reasons that I think we, as you'll hear me say in, in subsequent weeks, I think our problem is we quench the very spirit that's in us. That's, that's the solution we're scratching at. He does all of these things that we're talking about. And we say, but I don't see it. And the answer is, because we're quenching that spirit. We're not allowing the spirit to do those things. In our life or in our churches. So it's individually or collectively. And that's why we see other people who can do some of these things seemingly more than we can. Joseph. Is it possible for the spirit to give us some of those and not all at the same time? Sure. I mean, we're all a work in progress, right? We're all being sanctified over time. I mean, just like we all don't struggle with the same level of, of, of habitual sin or the fact that we're all like at different points in our relationship with Christ, like this process of sanctification or what we called up here like the transformation that's going on, right? To become more and more like God with ever-increasing glory. And, and even mature, mature people who are very, very strong in understanding the Spirit will say, even our life sometimes is like this, right? It's never just like a straight line or a straight upward climb. So the answer is yes, that can happen. Daniel. Um, I want to go back to hope. I was thinking a lot about that, like, yeah, where is our hope? Um, and I think a lot of us have equated hope to maybe the joy celebration. Like, if you have a lot of hope, you're going to be very happy and you're going to be very excited. Um, but I, I'm making an assumption that, that Christ had overflowing hope. And there was a point where he was sweating blood. And so hope does not always manifest as like this really happy, positive emotion. Uh, and I know a lot, of, a lot of really strong people that have overflowing hope. And they're not always happy. And so I want to I say that the more and more I, I do. Because when really hard times come up, uh, I'm never defeated because I, I hold on to that hope. And it has always, to this point, overcome all of those things. Sure, and it's hope in someone, which is really important because I don't think that hope should ever be defined temporally in this world, right? Because you can lose everything in this world, and our hope is still in someone. Not even something, not even like, well, there's eternity, or there's heaven, but there is Christ. And that's actually supposed to be the object of our hope, to hope in someone that can never be taken away. And you can see that, I think, a lot in Paul, even through his suffering, was constantly portraying that. That's probably why he can write about it in some way, to explain where that comes from. Jess? Uh, I was, I think you kind of just sit on that. I was going to say probably it's like a domain-specific hope, which would then not be temporal or and also, I thought, would you differentiate it from like, optimism, which I think you would. Um, but initially, when, when I hear language like that, I have this reaction like, oh, those people annoy me because <laughs> they're out of touch with reality or whatever. Or, um, <laughs> or, or make me feel like a horrible, pessimistic person or something. But I think that's all bound up in a misunderstanding of what should really be going on. I think that's right. I think a lot of us hear words like this, well, maybe nobody in this room, but there are people who hear words like this and think, I gotta look like that. So they go to like the Halloween shop and figure out what costume you can put on that would look like overflowing hope. 
And those are probably the people you're talking about that drive us crazy. We end up like looking like it as opposed to having it. And I think that's where we all feel the difference between authenticity of this versus just the I can't, I just can't, right? Um, and we have to be careful of that overcorrection. One of the authors I'm reading was talking about this, we'll talk about it later, about, about how many times does it repel you when people say, oh, I have a word from the Lord, right? Most of us are like, ah, right? <laughs> but that's an, over, that's an overreaction. And he confesses that's an overreaction. Because there are people that have a word from the Lord, and we're not even to have to contempt for prophecy. In fact, we're supposed to appreciate it in the church. And so we're so used to the, what the, the, the inauthentic version that we actually might be quenching the people who actually do. So we just have to be a, avoid like that a kind of overcorrection. You want to push back? Any other questions on these? I mean, this is a long list of stuff the Spirit does. And I would say, when I read this, I thought, wow, that's a lot of stuff that God provides that I need to know a little bit more about. One of the books we're reading is by A.W. Tozer. Tozer was known for his bluntness. Didn't tolerate people uh, and try to gently deliver the truth. He just kind of said it. Uh, and one of the things that he said that I'll close with is this. As a way of gauging where we are, because next week, as I said, we're going to be talking about what would it look like if your life had these things in it. He asked this question, do you want more of God in your life? Tozer says, it is possible to know him in increasing intimacy. He's talking about the spirit. I want to ask you, do you know God better now than you knew him a year ago? I want to ask you, do you know God more intimately, warmly, than you knew him a year ago? Are you growing in grace? Are you nearer to God now than you were a year ago? Are you closer to the heart of God now? If you are not, something is seriously wrong. And you should consider doing something about it no later than tonight. You should have an altar call after that, right? Like... He didn't mince words about what this intimacy with the Spirit was supposed to be like and what evidence you would find in your life. The reason I wrote this quote down is because it stopped me in my tracks because I thought, do I really know God more intimately than a year ago? Am I growing? Because if we just go back one slide, that's exactly what's supposed to be happening in some of these things. We're supposed to have ever-increasing glory. It's supposed to be producing this fruit in us. We're supposed to be understanding these things. It's just a question to gauge our soul. I think it's kind of harsh, but that's where he's coming from to kind of remind us, like, maybe we don't know. Next week, I want to look at this question, like, what would my life look like if the power of the Spirit was evident in me? And we'll be talking about how it is that we can grow in letting the Spirit take more of the control of our life and us less. Keep that image of the car in mind, because most of us at this point are still somehow okay we're just kind of pushing the car along and we're trying really hard to figure out if he can do all those things, how do I let the spirit do those things? How do I grow in intimacy to allow that power to be unleashed in my life? So thank you for letting us get that basic information out. Next week, we can actually start to make it very personal and practical. Let's pray for the spirit to do that. Spirit, you tell us that these things are the things that you will bring to mind, that you will bring us to all truth, that you will give us illumination into the very scriptures that you inspired. And I ask that desperately at this point, because we can read scripture after scripture after scripture that just kind of proof text what it is that we're trying to get out. But Lord, in the end, these are the words that were given to us about who you are. And I pray that you make them come alive. 
I pray that you remind us of these words during this week, that you would bring them to mind, that you would lead us to truth, that you would continually give us strength to continue to seek even more intimacy with you, that you would draw us closer to you, that all these things would not just be flat words, but they would just be the beginnings of how it is we can clear our mind of all the misgivings we have about who you are so that we can have a clear understanding and begin to seek you earnestly and seek you in the right places. Lord God, do that in our life, please. We're desperate for you. and We just don't even know how much it is that we don't have you. We don't know how long it's been that we've been motoring on our own power. We have no idea what it would be like to take flight. So give that to us this week, Spirit. We pray this in your name. Amen.